Welcome to Pocket Odysseys, travel science fantasy. Enjoy the story. The House of Troubles by Joe Liliodal. The sun was high overhead when the ship docked in solitude and burned hot in the midsummer sky. But even so, there was a certain crispness to the air that one could not feel so much as smell. It added to what was already a beautiful day, and I was eager to get off the boat and begin exploring. Thanks to many of my predecessors, I knew so much about Skyrim already, but it was the writings of one man in particular that gave me such cause. His name was Spurious Teufel. It was because of his writings that I had developed such a love of this land. So, when the chance came to fetch one of his written works, well, a letter really, but no matter, you can be sure that I gave my superiors no choice but to send me. With my belongings in tow, I climbed the centuries-old path from the docks up to the city gates. The architecture was both familiar and new all at once. Solitude, of course, was built with imperial influence, but like all things borrowed, it bore unique variances, variances rendered by the native craftsmen. For example, the stones appeared to be cut in imperial fashion, but they were of greater scale and more roughly hewn. More noticeable, though, was the lack of carvings and motifs which are common on many imperial buildings back in Cyrodiil. I remember Spurious writing of a similar observation, noting that it was likely due to the nature of the stone, at least in part. Although he was referring to the Nord architecture at the time, I believe the same can be said for the imperial stylings of solitude, for it is certainly not the same stone as can be found back home. No matter, it was amazing to behold. As I approached the gates, I was met by a man from the palace. He welcomed me warmly and introduced me to the city upon entrance. Again, like the exterior, the dwellings within echoed those from home. But there was no mistake that I was not in Cyrodiil, as the Nords made no pretense when building the various interior homes and shops. Their message was loud and clear, this is Skyrim. But no matter what the original architects may have thought, I thought it was a beautiful amalgamation of the two provinces. As we made our way to the Blue Palace, we passed the famed Bard's College. I was eager to look through its library as I've been told that even though it was not large, it held priceless volumes that could be found nowhere else. Ten minutes later, we finally reached the Blue Palace. Now this was a building of Cyrodiil, of the Imperial City itself. It was beautifully crafted, and I defy any craftsman from Cyrodiil to say otherwise. Either the architects were having none of the shenanigans from the main city, or the palace was the first thing built. Upon entry, I was shown to my room, and was told that dinner would be in two hours' time, and that someone would be sent to escort me to the dining hall. I was grateful to have some time to clean up and get some rest. At dinner, I was seated next to the house mage. Sybil, I believe her name was. Imagine my surprise when I came to realize that she was a vampire. 
I must admit that being seated next to a vampire at the dinner table was not something that I would have ever thought I would write about. She was a bit aloof, but all in all, friendly enough, and more than willing to answer all my questions about the city. It would seem that being immortal has its advantages when it comes to history. However, if I'm being honest, the disadvantages are a bit more than I would be able to stomach. Speaking of stomachs, dinner was splendid. There were five courses, and each was every bit as delicious as the one before it. We were started out with a light and scrumptious plate of shrimp, caught fresh from the sea that very morning or so I was told, after which came a beautifully presented salad of greens grown by the cook himself and dressed perfectly with vinegar and oil. Following the salad was a delicate and very refreshing lemon ice. Then came the main course, a masterfully cooked slice of the tenderest venison that I've ever had, and served with seasoned potatoes and mushrooms. Finally, the meal ended with the most delicious chocolate cake drizzled with a snowberry reduction. Afterwards, we were all ushered to a room to enjoy an after-dinner drink and less formal interactions. It was here that I met the court historian, Telbin Bricius. It was Telbin that had the unenviable task of telling the guest from Cyrodiil that what he came for was not in solitude. What? I blurted out in shock and surprise. I'm sorry, but I've searched the archives over and over since I've heard of your coming. The document you seek simply isn't here. I tried to send word when I was certain, but it was too late. Your ship had already been departed by a week, he said apologetically. He could tell that I was furious, and so quickly excused himself. Indeed, I was furious, but more than that, I was disappointed. As I sat by the large hearth, sulking, brandy in hand, a man stepped into view. Well, his legs and feet did anyway, as I was looking down at the time. I don't believe we've met, he started. I am Crawlius Yalstrom, current headmaster at the Bard's College. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but as I understand it, you're looking for an artifact from yesteryear. I think I might be able to help you. With renewed vigor, I perked up and listened as Crawlius continued. It's a letter, I believe, and was supposed to have been delivered to your organization, but never made it. Am I correct? Well, yes, but that's hardly a secret, I said, somewhat disappointed. How can you be sure it's the one I'm looking for? Do you have it by chance? I asked. No, I'm afraid not. But several years ago, during a visit to Riften, I happened to glimpse a letter that was in the possession of a colleague of mine there. I wouldn't have taken much notice, but the wax stamp was quite unique and caught my attention. Well, that and the glass case it was displayed in didn't hurt either, I suppose, he said with a chuckle. I remember the sigil quite clearly. It was definitely from the Great Imperial Historical Archive, that much I knew for sure. But what struck me was that it had an additional ring around the edge with a small but definite S-T at the bottom. I've had the great fortune of seeing the archive sigil more than once, and always they are the same. But this one was different, if even just so. Oh, and did I mention that the seal was fully intact? Anyway, I may not be a historian, but part of my job as headmaster at the Bard's College is to pay attention to detail, and this is a detail I definitely noticed. 
I don't know exactly what it means, but I can tell you that I've never seen anything like it before or since. I must get to Riften, I blurted out. Do you think he still has it? I asked as I stood up. I'm not certain, he replied. Hopeful, I thanked Crawlius and made to return to my room so that I could pack my things immediately. As I was leaving, I stopped at the door and asked a nearby servant to fetch me a carriage. The hour was late, however, and I was informed that no carriages were leaving solitude at that time. I would have no choice but to wait. First thing the next day, however, I set out for Riften. Riften? No, I don't go to Riften. I can take you as far as Whiterun, though. They have carriages there that go to Riften was the response I received from the driver the next morning when I inquired about his services. Very well, I said. How long will it take to get to Whiterun, then? The driver, Thayer was his name, turned out to be quite amicable and routinely pointed out areas of interest or wildlife as we traveled. At night, we would stop and camp. I remember the first night we stopped, asking him why. Thayer simply responded, It'll be dark soon. We stopped for the night. Then, noticing my obvious look of disappointment, he added, Look, I don't know about Cyrodiil, but nighttime can be dangerous in Skyrim. I'm not willing to ride into a pack of wolves or a group of vampires without warning. Besides, my horse needs rest, and so does his driver. He was right, of course, and I knew it. As we settled in that first night, Thayer looked up and pointed to the sky. Look there he said. Do you get that down in Cyrodiil? I looked up to see a blazing ribbon of colors dancing across the night sky. The colors were vibrant and slowly shifted between the deep hues of the spectrum. After a long pause, and still gazing at the wondrous night sky, all I could say was, yes, but nothing like that. I think I saw him smile a bit, and then he went on to tell me about this ribbon of color. We call it the Belt of Talos, or Talos Belt for short. Story goes that Talos himself creates that belt of dancing lights as a reminder to his people that they are not forgotten, not alone, that he will always be there to protect them. The remainder of the night was spent in silence, each of us simply taking in the bewildering beauty of the belt and the night sky. I don't think I shall ever look upon it quite the same. We continued in this manner over the next few days, traveling all day and camping at night. And though the scenery was beautiful, after several days of that hard bench seat, my bottom was so sore that I could barely sit. Thayer woke me early on what was to be the last day, the sun just coming up over the horizon. It was as if the whole eastern sky was on fire. Deep oranges and reds and pinks framed the horizon, and the low clouds that hung there were both silhouetted and highlighted by the light. It was hard to believe that this was the same sun that lighted Cyrodiil. Look, he said, pointing to the distance in front of us. Dragon's Reach, the Great Hall of the Jarl of Whiterun. We should arrive by midday. When we arrived, I asked Thayer where the carriage was that could take me to Riften. It's not that I was exceptionally eager to hop onto the back of another carriage so soon, Quite the opposite, really. But as I had no business to do in Whiterun, it seemed a shame to waste half a day's light. He said that he didn't see it, that it must be out. So upon his advice, I went to ask someone at the stables. 
Yeah, Yorlam's out right now, replied the stable hand when I inquired about a carriage to Rifton. Don't expect he'll be back for at least three days. I should have waited the three days. How much to rent a horse? I asked. Rent? Are you joking? You can buy one for a thousand septums. Oh, I had the coin, but barely. I should have waited for the carriage. Very well. One thousand septums, I said. Which way to Rifton? Rifton, sure. Down at the main road, you'll want to go east. Then just stay on the main road, really. Follow the signs. But the roads can be dangerous if you don't know them. I suggest waiting for Bjorlum. I'll refund you in full if that's what you want to do. No, that's fine, I said, mounting the horse and ignoring his warning. I then trotted to the main road, took a right, and was off. West, towards Falkreath. The weather was fantastic and I was able to put a great deal of distance between myself and Whiterun. As I rode, the road began to curve lazily around a great plain on my right, and shortly before dusk I came to a crossing, a sharp turn to the left. Among the various pointers was a sign that read Riften. Excellent, I thought, just as the stable hand had said. But I noticed another sign not far up ahead, and since I felt that I had some time, I decided to take a quick look. That signpost showed that I could go right to a place called Rorikstead, or continue straight, well, more or less straight, to Markarth. I knew of Markarth, and had been told that the Dwemer buildings are a sight to behold. I should see them for myself sometime, I told myself. I had never heard of Rorikstead. No matter, I turned around, back to the sharp left, and towards Riften. I had hoped it wasn't much further. The road inclined, and as I went up, the sun quickly began to go down, and before I knew it, it was dark. That's when I fully understood why the carriages do not like traveling at night. I tried to keep moving, but could not. It was simply too dark, and I could not see. After shuffling around in the dark for a period of time, I found a reasonably level patch where I could tie up the horse and settle in for the night. As I did, I prayed that the dawn would come before anything else. I awoke the next morning to a beam of light that had pierced its way through the trees and fell warm across my face. Morning had arrived, and I was greatly relieved that the sun was the first thing to find me. I did have some rations, and so I had a very meager breakfast before packing my things and saddling up again. As I continued along the road, it wound its way through the evergreens, and I couldn't help but think how lovely it all was. There was a crispness to the air, although not like in solitude, but still perceptible. The land here is rugged and unbridled, and perhaps that's what it was. Whatever it was about this area, it was both calming and invigorating all at once. I continued at a casual pace, following the road. The trees and jagged rocks didn't allow for much visibility, but the atmosphere remained serene. I did come across a few travelers, but no words were exchanged other than a cordial good morning or hello. There was a group of Thalmor that felt the need to express themselves a bit more than the others, but despite their rudeness, they went on about their business, as did I. By noon, I came to a river crossing with a quaint mill on the other side. Seeing no need to stop, I simply waved and continued past. By late afternoon, I came to a Y in the road. 
As there was no clear direction as to which was considered the main road, nor was there any signage, I kept right. The road began to descend now, and as I plodded my way down the road, so did the sun behind the horizon. Another day had passed. Not wanting to be caught in the dark again, however, I began searching for a suitable campsite before the sun's light was gone. But as I did, I heard the howling of wolves, and then I saw them. A pack of four came rushing from the trees. Not yet having gotten down off my horse yet, I had just enough time to spur her into action. I held on tight while racing down the road. I vaguely remember another road branching off to my left, turning hard. My horse whinnied loudly, but I had no choice but to keep going. It wasn't long after that hard turn that the horse began to slow. The poor beast was wet and gasping for air, and I had to stop. Looking around, I came to the conclusion that my mad dash had been enough to discourage the wolves' pursuit as they were nowhere to be seen or heard. But at what cost? I began walking the horse dry and noticed her limping. When I looked to see why, I found that one of her forehooves was cracked. In my panic, I had driven her much too hard. I felt terrible and vowed to better control my emotions in the future. Obviously, I would not be riding her any more today, and not in the near future, either. Not until I found a farrier to look at her shoes and hopefully repair her hoof. Darkness was starting to settle in now, and there was no town or city in sight. I was lost. Fearing to go back in the direction toward the wolves, I continued forging my way ahead. The road began to slope upwards slightly, and as I climbed, I saw the silhouette of a building. Trying hard not to hurry and aggravate my horse's injury, I made for the building. As I neared the structure, I passed by a set of stairs that led to a small flat of land on my left. From there I saw another set that went up to a deck that was connected to the side of the building. With the overgrowth in trees, along with the deepening shadows of night, the details of the deck were veiled. Just beyond the deck, I found the entry to the dwelling. The building was at least two stories, maybe more, and the styling was definitely imperial. Out front was a signpost, or I assumed it was. The post was rotted about where a crosspiece might have been, although I thought I saw the finished edge of a sign in the nearby bramble, but it was not the time to investigate. Across from the building was another, but even in the ever-increasing darkness, I could see that its roof was caved in and the front deck had fallen, with most of it blocking what was presumably the front door. Beyond both buildings was a great stone gate, but the darkness would allow nothing of it to be learned tonight. I checked the remainder of the signpost, and it seemed solid enough, so I tied up my horse and tried the door. The door was solid and heavy, and to my relief, not locked. It creaked loudly as I entered. I peered in, but it was dark, really dark. I backed out and returned to my horse. There was no sense in going any further without a way to see. I dug through my pack for a lantern that I knew was in there somewhere. Why I didn't think of it earlier, I don't know. As I rummaged through my pack, I decided to simply remove it, as well as the saddle, and give my poor horse a well-deserved break. I found the lantern and lit it, patted my horse on the shoulder, and then quickly moved my gear and the saddle inside. I closed the door behind me and looked for a way to secure it, but there was no latch. It would seem that I would have to hope for the best tonight. With my things inside and the door closed, I looked around. 
I was in an entryway of some sort. There were broken benches along the walls to my left and right, and straight ahead there was a table. Walking up to it I found that it was surprisingly sturdy, so I set my lantern down and began looking around. On the table were what looked like letters, but when I went to pick one up, it crumbled at my touch. Left of the table there was an empty alcove with a small counter in front of it. All around the entry were bars that went from floor to ceiling and were surprisingly solid given the condition of some of the other items around. Beyond the entry there were large open areas, and considering what my lantern light could reach, I guessed that this was a tavern or an inn of some sort at one time. A gate in the corner gave access to the rest of the building, so grabbing my lantern I ventured further inside. The air was still, and the quiet seemed almost oppressive. I never realized how loud a breath could sound. Shadows created by my lantern's light fell long upon the floor and walls, fighting to reach into the gloom. The gate screeched loudly as I opened it, and as I pushed, a feeling swept over me as if the very silence was angry at being disturbed. Shuddering a bit, I stepped through. I immediately found myself in a room where the remnants of tables could be found. They were long tables with bench seats, and were obviously intended for maximizing patronage versus intimacy. A small half-circle of something, maybe leather, lay on the floor. On top of that lay what was left of some sort of animal skin rug. Whatever it was, it lay immediately to the right of the gate as I entered the room. What it could be, therefore, I couldn't say. As I looked closer about the room, I saw a balcony opposite of me, and a bit to the left, but essentially straight away was a hallway. On the walls, I found bits of fur, but nothing more. If a skin or animal hung there, it had long since rotted away. High on the walls hung placards, one on each wall, four in total, and upon each placard was mounted an object. And though my lantern's light could not reach them very well, they were outlined with a faint magical aura of some sort. In the magical glow, I could tell that they were weapons, and not just any weapons. One was a staff, another a mace, the third was a dagger, and the last was a great maul. It wasn't difficult to deduce their meaning. Sheogarath, Molagbal, Mehrunes Dagon, and Malakath, the four corners of the House of Troubles. I continued my cautious exploration of the main floor, a little more nervous now than before. The rest of the main floor consisted of a large counter, more seating, and the most unusual hearth. The hearth was positioned in the corner of the room, and built around it was a large statue of Mehrunes Dagon, as if he were crawling out of the corner of the building and stepping over the fire. However, with the flickering of my lantern's light, the shadows that were cast across its face were horrifying, so much so that I refused to get close to it. What is this place? I asked myself. Finally, in the hall near a stairwell was a large room. Again, a long table sat in the middle. But it was different, more refined. And upon the table there were still place settings laid out. Silver chalices and fine plates were placed neatly and undisturbed. I wondered why. Pictures hung about the walls, figures mostly, but some were of landscapes or architectural edifices. Again, it was too dark to make them out because I was not willing to step too far into the room. They would have to wait until morning. I closed the door 
as I stepped out of the room and cautiously made my way to the stairs. I chose to go up. The cellar would have to wait. There was no way I was about to start poking around in a cellar that night. The treads protested greatly under my weight, but otherwise felt solid. As I reached the top, I looked out over the balcony to the dining room that I had just come from. Dark shadows clung to the corners of the room below, recoiling from my lantern's feeble light. To my right was a broken ladder that at one time led up to a trapdoor in the ceiling. Next to it were two bookcases. They were of excellent craftsmanship, and I was astounded to see that the frosted glass panels in the doors were all still intact. I made to open one, but gave pause and then decided not to. I don't know why, but it didn't seem right to disturb them. Opposite the bookcases was a round table, a broken chair, and two rooms. One appeared to be a private chamber, while the other housed several beds, like a bunkhouse of sorts. By this time, my exhaustion had finally caught up with me, and I desperately needed to sleep. I decided to do so in the private room. Of course, the bed was unusable, but that was fine. I didn't really plan on using it anyway. After retrieving my bedroll and travel bag, as well as the horse's saddle, I rolled out the bedroll and went to sleep. I remember being woken up to the sounds of raucous laughter and music. I sat up and swung my feet out from beneath the covers, slipped on my boots, and retrieved my bag from beneath the bed. Rubbing the sleep from my eyes, I looked around the room. It appeared that a few others had straggled in while I slept. I stepped out of the bunk room and squinted from the light emanating from the large chandelier hanging over the room below. Take the shot already! I heard someone yell from below. I looked over the rail to see what was going on. Below, I saw a crowded room teeming with all sorts of characters, from heavily armored individuals to those wearing only robes, or just tattered rags, even. A thick smoke hung in the air, illuminated by the chandelier. It swirled slowly around, driven upwards by the heat of the flames, and then slowly descended as it curled along the cool walls. Beyond the bars that separated the inn from the entry, I could see several more entrant wantabees. Some were standing, while others were sitting on benches with their heads hung low. As a minstrel played, standing on a pelt that was placed over a semicircle patch, dedicated just for her, drunkards danced about. Amidst the rabble, the man's voice called out again, Come on, then! I spotted him below and could see that he was looking up and to my right. Following his gaze, I saw a man with a bow. Directly across the room from the bowman, high above the gated entry and mounted to the wall, were two targets. Several arrows protruded from each, but currently the man with the bow just stood there. He appeared ready to fire, but never drew the string. How odd, I thought, then pondered briefly how the arrows might be retrieved. Shrugging my shoulders, unable to come up with a solution, I looked over at the two bookcases. They seemed so out of place here. They were finely crafted with frosted glass panels and bits of exquisite inlay work. Currently, a woman stood before them, searching their contents. She reached in and took a book from the shelves, and as she did, the room began to spin, and the sounds of laughter and music rapidly fell to the distance. I remember falling to the floor, panting while I thought to myself, By the gods! What was in that ale? 
I closed my eyes tightly, but that only made the room spin faster, so I opened them again. Before me, in the darkness, I saw the faint outline of an otherwise translucent figure. It was definitely a feminine form, and she was at the bookcase. She appeared to be pulling a book out of the case, even though the thin moonlight streaming in clearly showed that the doors were shut. The ghostly figure then turned and looked directly at me, paused, and then quickly turned and ran down the stairs. I scampered to my feet, calling out to her, but no sound came from my voice. I ran after her, but could not catch her. As I ran, I saw her disappear around the banister and into the cellar. Without thinking, I continued my pursuit. A flash of ghostly light caught my eye as I came upon the cellar landing, and then it disappeared around a corner. I rounded the corner as fast as I could, but my pursuit abruptly ended when I slammed into a gate that I had failed to notice in the darkness. And there I sat on the stone floor, stunned by the blow. I made to get up, but as I did, the darkness started to swirl all about me, enveloping me in an ethereal cloak. The image of the gate that I had run into began to dim and blur until it finally was no more. I woke up to the sounds of birds singing, and the bright morning light that had successfully found its way through the impossibly dirty windows on the far side of the room. My body ached as I sat up in my bedroll and looked around. Remnants of sleeping on the hard floor and of being on the road over the past couple of days, or so I assumed. What a strange dream, I thought, as I rubbed my face. Just then, a searing pain shot through my nose. I pulled my hands away quickly and looked at them. I stared in great disbelief. Blood. My blood. I reached up again, much more carefully this time, and felt the wet stickiness of a bloody nose trying to heal. Prodding up a little further, I winced in pain as my fingers touched the bridge. I wasn't certain, but it was probably broken. Throwing caution to the wind, I jumped to my feet and threw open the door. Speckled with light that came in from, until now, various unseen windows as well as holes in the structure, I saw a tavern in an advanced state of rot and disrepair. Little seemed to have changed since I had arrived during the night. What is this place? I asked myself again. That's when I noticed it. The bookcase door. It was open. I walked slowly towards it. I don't know why I was so cautious, but I was afraid of, of something. I stood before the two cases in awe, staring at the contents within. Perfect. The books. They were in immaculate condition. It was as if they had come straight from the binder and placed directly upon these shelves. How could that possibly be? As I looked over the books, I found that there were many titles I did not recognize, but those that I did were centuries old. I wanted so much to page through them, but I dared not touch any. As I continued to look, I came upon an empty slot. I stood back a bit, eyeing the situation. The book, or rather the empty space, was about the same spot that the ghostly image from my dream stood, where she had reached in. What is this book? And who was the woman? I stood there trying to puzzle it all out, but after a moment decided that the only way I was going to find any answers was to venture down into the cellar. I descended the staircase, pausing briefly to look at a collage of directional signs nailed to the wall. Surprisingly, they were still legible considering the condition of the inn. 
I continued down until I reached the stone floor. In front of me was an opening into the dark cellar. Having grabbed my lantern beforehand, I lit it and walked in. It wasn't a particularly large cellar, but neither was it small. And with the ruined boxes, crates, and casks that filled the corners, it appeared as any storage cellar might, with the exception of an area in the far left corner. Barred off, much like the entry, were a couple of adjoining alcoves, and within was a bed. A bed? I queried aloud. Who on earth would make a room like this in a cellar? The gate was open, so I stepped in. The alcoves were filled with so much clutter that I could hardly move. I was able to find my way to the bed and to the nightstand. However, on the stand, as if frozen in time, was a lamp, a couple of rings, and a book. I carefully picked up the book and opened it. The pages were extremely brittle, and I could not open it very wide, not without destroying the thing. But from what I could see, it appeared to be a ledger of sorts. I set it back down and moved on. I examined the gate as I stepped out of the room, if you could call it that, but determined that it was not the one that I had run into in my dream. I turned to look around some more, and there it was, the gate that the ghost lured me into. I took the handle and pulled. The gate screeched open. Beyond was a small room that was obviously meant to store more valuable items, but currently the only things being kept there were deteriorated chests, barrels, and broken vials. I stood there dumbfounded. This is where she went, I was certain of it. But where? There was no exit save the gate I had just come through. I was about to turn and leave when out of the corner of my eye I saw cobwebs fluttering about in the corner, knowing that cobwebs do not move of their own accord. I stepped in to take a closer look. As I looked at the cobwebs, I could feel a very slight breeze. So with the lantern in close, I examined the back wall, and that's when I found it. A slightly different colored stone that protruded just a little more from the wall than the others. I felt underneath and discovered that it had a notch in it, enough for a person to get their fingers in. In the stone was a lever, and to my surprise the lever was still operational. I pulled it with my fingers and the whole stone tilted. I heard a clunk, and then the wall began to swing in. I stepped in and the wall swung back to its original position. Before me was a tunnel. Thanks for listening to Pocket Odysseys, Travel Size Fantasy. If you enjoyed this tale, give us a like or rating on iTunes. Let's see how many listeners we can fit in our pocket. For more about stories, writers and producers, visit pockets.charactercrusade.com. Pocket Odyssey.